Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Let me invite you to find a Bible and to turn to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and you'll find that on page 967 if you're using a black Bible or 1149 if you're using a large print. Just before we begin a brand new series next Sunday morning in 2 Samuel, we're just taking two Sundays, morning and evening, to think about the whole matter of money. It's in the news It's in our hearts and minds so much, isn't it? It's in our church life. And so four things about money last week, love and contentment. Today, example and people. Example this morning and people this evening. And so let's read God's word. Let me read it for us. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means and, as I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So last Sunday we saw the poor widow, didn't we? The widow's might. And here is a whole church of poor widows. What happens when you get a room full of people with her heart? They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little 
had no lack. Just turn forward to chapter 9, now in verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service, this giving, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Amen. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, in moments like this, we simply give back to you, the great giver, your inexpressible gift given so freely at such cost. And so as we listen together, open our hearts, we pray, to you. Open our hearts, we ask, to one another and to your world. And in these moments, may we be different through being here, through meeting you afresh. Hear us, we pray, in Christ's precious name. Amen. Example is not the main thing in influencing others. It is the only thing. Have you ever heard something like that? Example is not the main thing in influencing others. It is the only thing. What about this one? What you do speaks so loud, I cannot hear what you say. What you do speaks so loud, I cannot hear what you say. The power of example. We observe, we imitate, we follow, we thrive, don't we, as human beings on the example of other people. So much of who we are and what we do is caught, not taught. I'm sure you'd agree with that. And it is no exception when it comes to us and the issue of our money. Now, many of us in this room have had the privilege, haven't we, of growing up in, uh, in wonderful Christian homes where we have seen great examples of generosity. Maybe we've watched our parents just open their home all the time to other people. Or, or maybe somebody has given us something. Maybe somebody has given us many things that have left us speechless. Such was their generosity. And it sticks with us. Example is so powerful. 
But many of us as well in this room haven't had that kind of experience, that kind of background. We've had no real experience of surprising, lavish generosity just bestowed on us unexpectedly. We all need help, don't we? Here's the primary example for us this morning. Whatever our background, wherever we've come from, here is the primary example at the heart of the Christian life, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The life of Christ. We're going to focus on chapter 8, verse 9. And we're going to use that one verse as a little bit of a window for looking out on the rest of the passage because that is how Paul uses verse 9. I want you to give, Paul is saying. You maybe picked that up as we read the passage. It's crystal clear, isn't it? I want you to give, Paul is saying. So here's an example. Here's one I prepared earlier. That's what they say, isn't it? Here's the, here's the role model. Here's the ultimate pattern. I want to show us three things this morning as we look at this. Number one, what Jesus models. Number two, what Jesus wants. Number three, what Jesus offers. What Jesus models, what Jesus wants, what Jesus offers. All from this verse, all worked out through the rest of what we read together. Number one, what Jesus models. And friends, here is what the Lord Jesus models in this verse. Here here it is in a nutshell. He models sacrifice without self-regard. Sacrifice without self-regard. That is what Jesus lays in front of us. You you can see the sacrifice very clearly in the verse, can't you? Verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, see the sacrifice? He became poor. Though He was rich, He became poor. He sacrificed wealth for poverty. It's the greatest sacrifice the world has ever seen. Jesus swapped splendor for shame. He swapped plenty for scarcity. He gave up abundance. And He took on degradation. You will have seen this as much as I have. You you turn on your TV and there's the news that somebody has won the Euro jackpot, I don't know what it is, 300 billion or whatever it is that they can can win, a huge amount of money. And that one person who has become rich, they take it and they share it out, don't they, among friends and family. They discover family members that they never knew existed all of a sudden. And through the riches of that one person, other people become rich. One person's wealth leads to other people's wealth. Think think about the opposite. When somebody goes bankrupt, loses everything, they've lost everything overnight, business, home, money, car, family, everything is gone. Friends, imagine when that happens. Imagine somebody else in the family coming alongside them and saying to that friend, I'm going to sell my home. I'm going to sell my car. I'm going to sell my business. And they take everything that they've sold and given and they give it to the bankrupt person so that that bankrupt family member can keep their car, their home, their business. Somebody has become rich through somebody else's poverty. Now, what would you do if that was you? If you were, if you were the same as me, we'd be saying, no, 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 no that, that's awful. We'd say, you can't do that. You can't do that for me. It's my mess. I, I dug this hole. I have to sort it out. 
You, you might help me out a little, but you should never become poor so that I become rich. Just try that on somebody, friends. It's hard enough to get people to accept you buying a coffee for them sometimes, isn't it? Never mind bestowing wealth on somebody. No, I, I, I'm in charge. I'll sort this out. Yet, that is what Jesus does, isn't it, in verse 9? That is what the Lord Jesus does. Oh, there are glorious, glorious depths here. Just, just think about it for a moment, friends. In, in, in what sense was Jesus ever rich? In what sense was he rich? How can we say that? Born to a mother whose reputation was always going to be questioned. The son of a carpenter, a tradesman, and I guess enough to live on and get by, but not wealth. A carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus was a backwater boy from a backwater town. Do you remember what he said? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but I have nowhere to lay my head. No fixed abode, no real estate, no property. How was he rich? Paul is meaning here, friends, that as the eternal Son of God, there were no limits to Jesus' splendor. No limits. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in John's Gospel in the hour of his death, facing the hour? Father, glorify me with, with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus existed before the world began. Before there was a universe, there was the eternal Son existing with a glory, a radiance, a, a splendor so magnificent that a million suns in the sky wouldn't even come close to the brightness of His glory. Oh, He was adored by His Father. Worshipped by the angels. He was God in all His perfection. He was invulnerable to pain invulnerable to frustration and embarrassment. His supremacy was total. His power was unrivaled. His majesty had no end. It was limitless. And Paul says he became poor. What, what, what an astonishing verse in our Bibles. The Lord Jesus, the Creator, became a creature. He became a man. Without ceasing to be what he was, now he became what he was not. Still fully divine, still God. But now as the God-man, that splendor is hidden, isn't it? It's veiled, it's, it's no longer visible. And he becomes indescribably poor. Friends, that step of becoming a child joining himself to human nature in the womb of his mother. That step is incredible, isn't it? But it was just the beginning of a long downward journey into, well, well what, what came next? Homelessness, exhaustion, rejection, shame, mocking, spit, scourging, and the nails of crucifixion. There's the sacrifice that's what Jesus models. There's the sacrifice. But look again at the verse. Look how he models that for us. Jesus models for us sacrifice without self-regard. Did you notice those three little words in the middle of verse 9? That though he was rich, not, not just though he was rich, he became poor, as if 
He kind of lost it overnight accidentally. Though he was rich, yet, here's the three little words, for your sake. For your sake. What Jesus did, Paul is telling these Corinthian Christians, he did for you. He did in your place. He did instead of you. When he exchanged his riches for poverty, he did that for us. That's the meaning of a sacrifice, isn't it? Somebody loses so that someone else wins. Somebody suffers so that someone else rejoices. What do people around us think if they know anything about the Christian story? Don't they think something like this? Isn't isn't that lovely? Jesus entered our world growing up, living, dying. Good for him. Lovely Jesus. But is that it? Is that what his life and death means? He came, he lived, he died to show us he loves us. God loves us. No, those three little words in verse 9 are the heart of it, aren't they? they? They change everything. They explain everything. You know what happens if you see a father walking along the clifftop with his children and he, he tells his children that he loves them, puts his arms around them on the top of the cliff, says to his children, I, I love you, and then jumps off the cliff to his death. It's not an act of sacrifices it's not an act of love it's an act of lunacy but if a father dies in a river precisely because he has pulled his own child out of the river and saved the child from the river rescued them from it then we understand exactly what it means to say that he did something for their sake he exchanged life for death but for the child's sake Jesus left heaven, Paul is saying, not for the sake of it, but for the sake of people who weren't fit for heaven. Jesus left heaven's riches for the sake of people who were too poor for heaven. It's what you see happening all the time, isn't it? We, we watch people, I don't, know, I don't know what the latest, I don't know what the biggest prize money is out there. It used to be X Factor, didn't it, on TV. People queuing up all the time because they are poor and they desperately, desperately want to be rich. I was getting my hair cut a couple of weeks ago and the hairdresser said to me, I would love with every fiber, she literally said, with every fiber of my being, I would love to be a millionaire. I thought, well, I don't have a lot of hair left. You're not going to get far cutting my hair. It's what we desperately want, isn't it? All around us to be rich. We, we would love to be wealthy. It might be normal, but it's, it, it's the opposite of what Paul is saying here, isn't it? How many billionaires have you ever seen queuing up to go the other way, to become indescribably poor? It's an amazing thing, I guess, about being a billionaire. You can give away a lot of money and still be incredibly rich. When was the last time we ever saw somebody giving everything they had to someone who had nothing and who didn't deserve to have anything, but they gave everything to them. Jesus did. It was a sacrifice without self-regard. He didn't have to come. He didn't have to die. He was rich, Paul says, yet for my sake, and your sake, our sakes, he became poor. 
That's the first thing. Number one, look what Jesus modeled, sacrifice without self-regard. Here's the second thing. Number two, what Jesus wants. What Jesus wants. And what Jesus wants is this. He wants giving without guilt. Giving without guilt. It's very hard to entangle guilt often, isn't it? To disentangle it from our giving. No, says Paul, let, let me help you with that. We, we, you can see, can't you, as, we, as you read what we've got here in front of us, that Paul wrote these words to get under the Corinthian skin, didn't he? he? He wants them to learn that Christ's giving should be the model for their giving. So just go back to chapter 8, verse 7. You see it? He's saying to this church, you're pretty good at everything. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge in all earnestness and in our love for you, ah, there's something you've left off. See that you excel in this act of grace also. You know, I said last week, didn't I, when we were looking at this, that sometimes we are so embarrassed to speak about money in churches. You, somebody said to me last week, I haven't heard preaching or teaching on money on our responsibility to give. It, it's a common thing, isn't it, that we leave off to the side what the Bible says about money. And when we do that, what we're doing is we're overlooking the fact that parts of the New Testament only actually exist in the first place because the Apostle Paul was a fundraiser. It's, it's what he did, traveling throughout the Mediterranean, planting churches and collecting money and saying to the churches that he planted, you need to help these other churches. Your Bible, friends, is a fundraising book. See, what's happening in chapter 8 is Paul is saying, look, I'm putting together a charitable fund for the poor believers in Jerusalem. And the Macedonian churches, that's chapter 8, verse 1, the Macedonian churches have already given radically generously to it. And now, Corinthians, I'm writing to you, it's their turn. Okay, it's like you getting a letter on a Sunday morning saying the IPC churches down in London have given this and I want to tell you about it, Trinity Church. In fact, if you look at chapter 8, verse 10, you, you can see that the Corinthians had already given to this fund, hadn't they? And it looks like they had pledged further money, but that was last year, 12 months ago. And it seems that Paul is writing here because that initial enthusiasm to dig deep had worn off a little. They'd given so much, but maybe now they were moving on to other things. They were, they'd, they'd lost interest. It often happens, doesn't it? A good start, and then we run out of steam. The direct debit just ticks over and over, and we forget what we're giving to. If you wanted to help Christian people give, if you, if you wanted to get beneath people's skin, what words would you use to try and get somebody to open up their checkbook? What Paul does is he paints a picture. Look at Christ, he says. Look at the Lord Jesus. I want you to be generous, Corinthians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He sacrificed without self-regard. And so, my dear Corinthian believers, with that model on display, with that example in mind, and with the example of the Macedonian churches in mind, will you now consider sacrificing for the sake of others? That's what Paul is doing. You know, C.S. Lewis said that 
obligation to feel will freeze your feelings. In other words, you can never tell somebody to feel something. Tell someone to be happy or to be grateful or to be thankful. You will freeze the emotion, not unlock it. But C.S. Lewis said you can make them feel it. And it's the same with giving here, isn't it? If, if, you, if you command somebody to give, if you coerce them, put their, put their hand up behind their back, force them into a corner, they will give grudgingly, won't they? Or out of fear, or worse, out of guilt, because they feel they have to, not because they want to. The Bible never tells us to give like that, friends. I hope you know that. I hope you can see that. It is not what Christ wants. What does Paul say, chapter 8, verse 8? I say this not as a command. No, I'm I'm not commanding. It's not a three-line whip here. No, instead, when we see the Lord Jesus, what what we realize as we look at our money is that that the issue of giving is always a spiritual x-ray of our lives, isn't it, our hearts? It's impossible to touch your money without going through the x-ray scanning machine. Do I give like him? Paul is asking freely, generously, gladly for the sake of others. Or do I give out of guilt or with reluctance? Now that's the first part of chapter 8 verse 8. But look at the second part of verse 8. And yet, isn't the second half of verse 8 so arresting? This is not a command, but... To prove by the earnestness of others, that's the earnestness of the Macedonians who in their poverty and affliction have given so freely, to prove by their earnestness, I say this to prove that your love also is genuine. Interesting. I'm not ordering you to do this. And yet, well... One way to gauge your love for Christ and love for his people is to see if you have given as generously as Christ himself and as generously as his people who are giving in other places. Isn't that interesting? What what, what do you make of that, friends, as we look at it? Is that manipulative? If you look at chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, it's very clear, isn't it, that Paul is simply saying to the Corinthians... Look how much and look how quickly the Macedonians gave. But friends, I want to suggest that that is not manipulation any more than speaking about what the Lord Jesus did in verse 9 is manipulation. No, it, it is simply the power of example. The power of example. Because here's the thing, friends. The Macedonian churches, you can see it in verse 2, can't you? The Macedonian churches were poor. They gave out of their extreme poverty. These were smaller, less affluent congregations, and yet they gave gladly and willingly, and they gave as much as they were able to, and even beyond it. It's an astonishing thing, isn't it, to say in verse verse five, uh, verse four. Sorry. These churches came and said, "When is the next offering, Paul? We we can't wait to give." And it is not manipulation to say to rich churches, look what poor churches have done. Listen to one commentator. He says this, No, it can hardly be called emotional blackmail when it is the gifts of the poor that are providing moral leverage on the stinginess of the rich. 
That's right, isn't it? That's the right way around. To use the giving of the rich to obligate the poor is a different matter. That's a problem. To make, to make the poor feel guilty. No, here, here Paul is simply saying that to, to rich churches that these poor churches have seen who Jesus is and look what they did when the example of Christ was laid out in front of them. And so he's saying to these Corinthians, where are you with Jesus? You glorious, strong, wealthy Corinthians. Where are you with Jesus? Where are you with the Lord of glory and his riches? Do you know what he did for you? What are you going to do, Paul is saying? It's what I said last week about why we're returning to the weekly offering. That, that weekly offering slot, whether we give in church or give in other means, that simple, simple moment as part of our worship is because we want to take the time every single week to say, Lord Jesus, where am I with you right now? Where am I with you with all of me and all that you have given to me? Do you have all of me or part of me? Friends, Paul knows that the Lord Jesus can radically transform the the stingy, cautious, self-centered heart into one that is free and open and expansive and radically generous. Look again at verse 3 of chapter 8. Entirely on their own. Entirely on their own, begging us. They gave according to their means of their own accord. Urgently pleading with us. That's, that's the sense of it. Urgently pleading for the privilege of sharing in this ministry. Look, look Paul, we, we don't have a lot. In fact, we've really got nothing much to speak of, but we want you to have it. Somebody said that to me last week after the sermon last Sunday morning, that, that their experience of living cross-culturally in other places, that somebody with absolutely nothing invites you into their home and spends the best that they have on you. That, that's the sense of it here. We, we want you to take this, Paul, and take it to our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Some believers think, I've, I've got to give. These believers think, we get to give. This is giving without guilt, isn't it? Not, not because I want to or have to. Do you notice the word that Paul uses? He uses it twice in verse 6 and again in verse 7. This act of grace. The grace of giving. It's very common in philanthropy, isn't it, when you're fundraising for something that people give with strings attached. Usually the bigger the check, the, it's not strings, it's ropes, isn't it? What am I going to get for my money? Will my name be on a wall, in a plaque, in a corner? I'll only give if such and such conditions are met or these things are in place. That is not the grace of giving. The grace of giving is when it doesn't benefit me, but it benefits you. Benefits someone else. That's what grace is. Not giving you what you deserve or what you have earned, but giving what you do not deserve and haven't earned because I love to give it to you. End of story. And friends, if there is no real relationship with the Lord Jesus of chapter 8, verse 9, the Lord Jesus who gives like this, then one way or another, all our giving will go wrong somehow, won't it? No relationship with him. Something will go off off course in our giving somewhere. We will give grudgingly or guiltily or stingily or for short-term gain. 
But look at chapter 8, verse 5. They, they did this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Any giving we do of our resources should follow on the back of us giving ourselves to God first of all. Friends, never ever at Trinity give to the church family or give to the Cruden Trust without a heart given to God. See the relational feel of all of this? Here's the commentator again. Instead of the calculated thriftiness of an accountant, these believers demonstrated the almost irrational extravagance of a lover. That's it, isn't it? How do lovers give to each other? What do they say? You didn't have to. You shouldn't have done that. That's amazing. That's beautiful. It's over-the-top, extravagant. It was not just money they were contributing. It was themselves. What Jesus models, what Jesus wants. Number three to finish. What Jesus offers. What Jesus offers. He offers riches without equal. The Lord Jesus offers riches without equal. Look again at our verse. You know the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty, what happens to us, might become rich. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus offers to you and to me riches without equal. Riches without equal to the blind and the lame and the outcast and the guilty and the dirty and the overlooked and the ignored and the impoverished and the captive. What does he offer? What did he do for each of those type of people? Go through the Gospels and add them all up. The blind, the lame, the outcast, the guilty, the dirty, the overlooked, the ignored, the impoverished, the captive. Add up all the people that Jesus touches, who he, who he invites and includes. Add up the mothers, the fathers, the sons, the daughters, receiving from him the riches of new life. What, what do they get? Speech back again. Sight back again. Their limbs work. Their hearts are revived. And in it all, a restored relationship with a loving Heavenly Father as people slowly, bit by bit, leave behind a life of sin. Jesus became poor to make us rich. What Paul says here is that the riches Jesus offers us really come home to roost in our generosity towards others. That's the rub of particularly these verses in chapter 9. The riches Jesus offers us come home to roost in our generosity towards others. When we give generously, look how God will make us rich. Look at chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Verse 12, this ministry is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Friends, isn't it simply true that the people that you and I know who are the most generous, is it not also true that they are always the most happy? Isn't it true? You you, you just feel this, you know this, don't you? That the, the, the stingier someone is with the wallet, the straighter the face it's the way that life works. There's, there's something inside that hasn't quite been unlocked yet. And it's 
because the sowing is minimal. And if the sowing is minimal, the harvest that comes back to that person is minimal and the heart does not open in all the ways that it can open. And that's what Paul is talking about here. There is a seed principle, a ripple effect from, from Jesus to us and then us out to others. That is how the gospel works. And as we serve like this, the needs of other people are met. And people come to praise God because of it. And when you love God and love his gospel and you give in a way that you, you, you see overflowing to others in praise to God, friends, those are riches without equal. Riches without equal. People who know the Lord Jesus, who, who love him, who've seen what he swapped and who know what he did for them, people like that live by those same three words in chapter 8, verse 9, don't they? For your sake. For your sake. The, the, the people who have caught sight of Christ in all his splendor coming to earth for us, those three little words become a life motto, don't they, for, for other people. It's somehow stamped on everything they do. The clearer the sight of Christ, the more this person says, for your sake. Here they say, to them, this is for you. This is for you. This, this was mine, but I want you to have it. Jesus has shown me how to give. You take it, it's yours. That is what Christ models. His, his self-sacrifice led him into the world towards others. Our self-sacrifice will do the same. It will lead me towards you, not away from you. Isn't that true? That the diff what's the difference between self-sacrifice and self-denial? Self-denial is all about me, isn't it? Going without the food or the whatever it is, to improve myself, to make myself better. Self-denial will make you a monk or a nun. It will shut you away in the monastery. But self-sacrifice will make you a family man or a family woman. Bound to other brothers and sisters in, in Christ's family. Bound to them up to your neck in mess often. And heartache as you give and give and give and give again. Here's how one theologian put it. Listen to these beautiful words. He said this, self-sacrifice means that where people suffer, there we will be to comfort. Where people struggle, there we will be to help. Where people fail, there we will be to lift up. Where people succeed, there we will be to rejoice. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? You know the old saying that any, any friend can share your failures. It takes a true friend to share your successes. Where people succeed, there we will be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means the end of my indifference towards you and the beginning of my interest in you and your world. Self-sacrifice means forgetting myself as I remember you. It means, listen to this, not that I live one life, but I live a thousand lives, binding myself to a thousand souls with bonds of love, so strong that the lives of others become mine. Oh, those are grand words, aren't they? Let, let me say this, friends. Don't try to give yourself to a thousand others. Start, start with one life. 
Start with two lives or three and invest in somebody else. Be as rich as you can towards one other person who needs your help. Start small. If you don't have money, give your time. Give yourself. Here's one beautiful thing everybody can do. Take Sundays, one day a week, this family before my family. These people in this room before me, before my own flesh and blood, these people come first one day a week. There's one way we can do self-sacrifice, isn't it? Because the reality of self-sacrifice is not measured in zeros or pound signs. It's never measured by how many I help. No, it's simply measured by how deeply I've grasped what the Lord Jesus did for me. This is the Bible's example of how to be really, really rich. Take what you have, whether you have a lot or a little, take what you have and swap your plenty for somebody else's lack. And what you will find is that you are rich. Rich in generosity. Rich in Christ-likeness. Rich in self-sacrificing love. Rich in sympathy and compassion and care. Rich in the ties of a family love that nobody on earth can explain unless you're on the inside of that family. Unless you've seen what Jesus did. And unless you adore Him for it. And love Him for it beyond words. Amen.